As health officials urge people to get another COVID booster, two small studies find the latest Omicron-specific shots aren't much better than the old ones. It's Wednesday, October 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a recap from last night's one and only debate in the contentious Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race between Republican Mehmet Oz and Democrat John Fetterman. He hasn't paid his own taxes 67 times, but he's raising mine and yours. Those are radical positions. You know, he has never met an oil company that he doesn't swipe right about. Also this hour, the view of the war in Ukraine from Russian-occupied areas of that country and the Massachusetts-based group that's working across New England to find and save native plants. In sports, the Bruins win and fog this morning, showers most of the day in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Russia's claims that Ukraine is planning to use a dirty bomb inside the country and blame Moscow for the resulting contamination. Got a hearing in a closed-door meeting of the U.N. Security Council Tuesday. Ukraine and Western nations have rejected the claim. Linda Fasulo has more. Russia's deputy U.N. ambassador told reporters that Moscow sent a letter describing its allegations against Ukraine in advance of the U.N. meeting. Named two Ukrainian sites, he said, were capable of producing dirty bombs and noted it is difficult to detect activities to create such devices. The envoy also said he was satisfied with the meeting, which he said raised awareness of the issue. Britain's deputy UN ambassador, meanwhile, said that Russia did not provide any new evidence to support its accusations, which he called Russian misinformation of the kind seen many times before. At Ukraine's request, the UN's nuclear watchdog is to send experts to inspect the two sites. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. Meanwhile, the Kremlin says assets in the four Ukrainian regions it illegally annexed last month could be transferred to Russian companies. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says it was obvious that, quote, abandoned assets couldn't be left inactive and that the government would deal with the issue. After two days of testimony, a trial over Georgia's abortion law, HB 481, wrapped up. As Jess Mador from member station WABE reports, the law bans most abortions after around six weeks of pregnancy and grants so-called personhood rights to embryos and fetuses. The ACLU is representing a coalition of Georgia abortion providers and abortion rights groups in the case. They're arguing the state's abortion law, known as HB 481, interferes with physicians' ability to treat patients and infringes on privacy protections in the state constitution. HB 481 took effect this summer, soon after the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And this week, over two days in court, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney heard testimony from dueling medical experts on both sides of the abortion debate. The judge has not yet issued a decision. He said he doesn't expect to rule before the November elections. For NPR News, I'm Jess Mador in Atlanta. Two weeks before Election Day, voters in Pennsylvania heard last night from the candidates in a key race that could help determine control of the Senate. And Pierce Giles Snyder has more. Almost immediately, Democrat John Fetterman acknowledged the stroke he suffered some five months ago, calling it the elephant in the room. The stroke left Fetterman with lingering problems that were apparent during the debate with Republican Mehmet Oz. However, the two largely stuck to issues from abortion and crime to inflation. And Pierce Giles Snyder. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. 
You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The speed restrictions that have slowed down the commute on the orange line of the T will stay in place through December. Those stretches are mostly north of downtown Boston. They remain there more than two months after the full month-long closure of the line. The MBTA originally said the slowdowns would only be in place for the first week after the shutdown. Now it says work is still being completed. Cities and towns in greater Boston issued more permits to build housing last year than they have since 2005. That's one finding in a new housing report card from the Boston Foundation. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Looking to buy a median-priced home in greater Boston? Researchers say you'll need an income of more than $180,000 a year to afford it. Luke Schuster is co-author of a new Boston Indicators housing report. He's encouraged by an uptick in new multifamily homes. There has been a meaningful uptick in housing production in the last five or six years, and in particular in multifamily housing production. One reason it's difficult to increase housing in greater Boston? Most of the land is under zoning rules that only allow single-family homes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Cambridge is joining several other Massachusetts communities in banning fur sales. City councilors unanimously approved the ordinance this week. It forbids the sale of new fur products within the city. There are exemptions for secondhand fur and fur used for religious purposes. The ban goes into effect January 1st. UMass Lowell will dedicate its new computer school today with the name of the alumnus who helped found the Android operating system. It'll be called the Richard A. Minor School of Computer and Information Sciences. Minor donated $5 million to the school. UMass Lowell Chancellor Julie Chen says the school will give students the opportunity to connect computer science with health sciences, cybersecurity, and more. Part of the mission of the school is also to increase the number of underrepresented students that go into computer science and to help economic development in this region north of Boston. Minor is a so-called triple river hawk. That means he got his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. at UMass Lowell. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. And an unlikely story bookstore and cafe with Pulitzer Prize winner Stacy Schiff and the revolutionary Samuel Adams, November 3rd, on unlikelystory.com. The Bruins beat the Dallas Stars 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. In your forecast, a dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning for all of eastern Massachusetts as well as Worcester. We'll have showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. High in the mid-60s, mostly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s, it should stay dry through the weekend. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Focus Features with Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins. One family's pursuit of the American dream from writer-director James Gray in Select Theaters Friday.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Pennsylvania Senate candidates held their only debate last night. Democrat John Fetterman faced Republican Mehmet Oz. One is a former small city mayor and current lieutenant governor. The other is a TV doctor. Each has questioned the other's fitness for office, but beyond their personalities is a question of power. The U.S. Senate is closely divided, and the way the math works out, a Democratic win in this one race would give them a good chance to keep control. A Republican win in this one race would sharply increase their chance to regain power. NPR's Don Gagne was in Harrisburg to see the candidates. Good morning, Don. Good morning. So what impression did they make? Well, Fetterman's health was a big question going in. Recall he had a stroke almost six months ago. He's still recovering. His doctor says he's fit to serve, but he does have some auditory processing issues. So video monitors on stage provided him with written text of everything being said in real time during the debate. Fair to say he did not put concerns voters may have about his health to rest. He often spoke haltingly. This is his opening statement. Hi. Good night, everybody. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. Here's a man that spent more than $20 million of his own money to try to buy that seat. Oz, on the other hand, was clearly very much at home in a TV studio. It felt like a performance. And while his answers were smoother than Fetterman's, he did dodge questions, uh, choosing instead to attack his opponent. So let's talk about the issues they were debating. There's probably no issue more contentious this year than abortion. How did they address that? It was a moment when you could feel Oz trying to reach into the suburbs to convince moderate and independent voters that he has a moderate position on abortion. He says he is pro-life but supports exceptions for rape, incest, or protecting the life of the woman. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. What he doesn't say is that many states have or may yet pass laws without those exceptions that he supports, including Pennsylvania, where the Republican gubernatorial candidate pledges to do just that. Uh, here's Fetterman's response. Roe v. Wade, for me, is, should be the law. He celebrated when Roe v. Wade went down, and my campaign would fight for Roe v. Wade, and if given the opportunity to codify it into law. And that was one of Fetterman's most direct, most focused attacks on us. Okay, so Democrats want to hammer Oz and other Republicans on abortion as a pivotal issue in these midterms. And Republicans have been successfully using crime as a wedge issue. What did that look like last night? Oz hit that hard. Mm -hmm. He accuses Fetterman of wanting widespread release of violent criminals. uh, And he attacks Fetterman's record from his time as mayor of the small town Braddock, Pennsylvania. Here's Oz. But part of the problem is that we have taken away the ability of police to do their job. And that's on John Fetterman. Because John Fetterman has taken such a harsh position against them. He's undermined them at every level, taken away some of their funding. Fetterman countered that gun violence went down during his time as a mayor, but it's still an issue that polls show works broadly against Democrats. Okay, so Don, the only debate now in the books, what do we expect from the two campaigns with Election Day less than two weeks away? 
Fetterman needs to deliver his final message convincingly. Expect him to get out in front of crowds. It's a more controlled setting, but he's done well with that in recent weeks. Oz maybe needs to be more relatable. His camp does think they have some momentum now. Uh, he has not been as present on the campaign trail. His events are often closed to most media or by invite only, but he does have an event today where he'll no doubt bask in what he sees as a big win in the debate. Uh, we'll also be watching to see what impact last night had on voters. NPR's Don Gagne covering last night's debate in Harrisburg. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Stock prices for Chinese companies lost some value this week. Chinese stocks plummeted in Hong Kong and in New York after Xi Jinping cemented a third five-year term as China's leader. The Chinese power structure lined up behind Xi, but the markets did not. So we've called Stephen Roach, a senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center of Yale Law School. He's also a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What do investors see that the Chinese government, I guess, would find inconvenient? They see a China that is um, in the process of really closing itself down from the rest of the world uh, and one that is aimed at conflict as it seeks to uh, achieve Xi Jinping's aspirational goal of being a great power uh, by the year 2049, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Are you saying that Xi, as president, has priorities that are not that that do not put China's economic growth first, the way that you might say that some past Chinese leaders have done? From the days of uh, Deng Xiaoping, growth was always number one. And um, uh, in Xi's China, uh, national security, uh, broadly defined, is now number one, even though he said uh, in this um, communique of the party congress that maintaining growth remains our first uh, priority. That was a very hollow statement in light of everything else he said. You know, Chinese authorities in the past have made it pretty clear that they felt they needed constant growth to keep their people happy to avoid any risk of a revolution or unrest. Is she no longer worried about that? Well, I think, you know, in his darkest moments, he must worry about it. But uh, what he's done over the past 10 years, Steve, is tighten up in the way of uh, domestic security, surveillance, and now in this party, Congress has eliminated uh, any opposition from uh, senior leaders and, in fact, has uh, instilled greater power in uh, one of his partners on the uh, so-called Standing Committee, a gentleman by the name of Wang Huning, who is responsible for China's deepening ideology, uh, as well as written the book on conflict between uh, America and China. So he's going further down the road of conflict, and I think that's very worrisome for the U.S., and for the rest of the world. Well, I'm glad you bring up the United States. What role, if anything, has the United States played in its conflict with China that might have raised doubts about China's economy? Well, we've, we've played a big role. This is a relationship problem. I've written a, a new book that's coming out shortly about this very issue. But, you know, in the last five years, we have launched a trade war with tariffs. We've launched a tech war, and we just upped the ante on that big time about uh, two weeks ago with sweeping sanctions on any uh, technology products going to China. Uh, and we're now in, embroiled in, in the early skirmishes of a new Cold War. So 
we've done our fair share and uh, China has responded in kind. And I think we'll see more of that response in the weeks ahead. Do you think that the U.S. move uh, against semiconductors particularly is, is a grave wound to China or something they'll just deal with and overcome gradually over time? I think it's a grave wound. I really do. One, one of the things that China aspires to the most uh, is to be a, a world leader in uh, artificial intelligence, advanced technologies, uh, and they need U.S. chips to do that. They have tried for years to build their own uh, chip-producing capacity and they have failed, and there's no quick fix uh, to that. So this this goes right at the heart of what Xi Jinping is trying to do uh, with modernizing China to hit his aspirational goals. Can you help me out with one other thing here, Mr. Roach? Uh, it's been clear for years the U.S. and China are facing greater and greater conflict. It's been clear for years that Xi Jinping was going to grab a third term for himself. And yet something happened this week that must have been unexpected since stocks sank. What was the surprise in all of this, really? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. Uh, I think the surprise was, was just staring um, these seven uh, members of the standing committee in the face uh, when they marched out on the stage of the uh, um, uh, National People's, uh, the end of the National People's Congress, and recognizing that there is not one person on there who is willing to um, uh, serve the function of being an honest broker, giving, uh, speaking truth to power, and giving Xi Jinping a different uh, perspective on many of the issues uh, that he is fixated on. So this is a s strong man uh, um, uh, perception that the markets uh, wanted to uh, admit wasn't happening, but was unfolding before our very eyes. Stephen Roach is at Yale. And uh, while you've been talking, I've been looking up your book here, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. President Biden has an extra COVID shot. He rolled up his sleeve yesterday for the latest booster. Now's the time to do it. By Halloween, if you can, that's the best time. And that way you can be protected for the holidays. Some research questions, though, whether the new bivalent boosters that target Omicron are any better than the old shots. Researchers at Columbia and Harvard University studied that. Here's Dr. David Ho at Columbia. To our disappointment, the bivalent vaccine did not show superiority over the original vaccine. His team found that about a month after getting the shot, people did not have significantly higher levels of antibodies to neutralize the dominant Omicron subvariants. But Deepta Bhattacharya at the University of Arizona considers the new studies too small and too short for firm conclusions. For those who are saying, Cece, I told you so, I would say let's stand down a little bit and wait for some cleaner data to come out because these studies can't be used to support really one argument or another. Dr. John Wary at the University of Pennsylvania is also saying to wait. It's a little bit of a sort of a reality check or a reset that the bivalent vaccines are not a magic bullet. They're not going to give us, you know, perfect protection from these new Omicron variants that are circulating. Only about 20 million people have stepped up to receive a new booster. Even though more than 10 times that number, over 200 million people have been eligible since Labor Day. This is NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBOR's Morning Edition, the view from inside what's known as Iran's most notorious prison for political prisoners. Earlier this month, it was ravaged by fires that killed at least eight people. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView smart motorization system. Hunter Douglas at Inuendo in Natick and Inuendo.com. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. It's foggy out this morning, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. The rain might get heavy at times. The high will be near 66. Tonight it falls to a low around 57. Tomorrow we finally get a respite from the soggy weather. It'll be sunny with a high near 67. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. Coming November 15th to WBUR City Space, a conversation with journalists Margaret Sullivan and Eileen McNamara. They'll be talking about the battles they've fought against sexism throughout their careers. It's part of our Phenomenal Women series. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Hala Esfandiari remembers many details of her time in Iran's Evin prison. One sound in particular. Every time I return to my cell from interrogation, and when they shut the iron door and locked it, I knew that This was it. I mean, if I wished to go out, I couldn't. And I think it was such a horrible noise that uh, it will stay with me forever and ever. Asfandiari is an Iranian-American academic. In 2007, she was imprisoned for what Iranian officials described as anti-government activities. She was held at Evin prison in solitary confinement for 105 days. Asfandiari has watched in awe as women in Iran remove their hijab and protest in the streets. These demonstrations started after 22-year-old Masa Amini died in police custody after being accused of wearing her headscarf too loosely. Human rights groups estimate that around 200 people have died since the protests began last month. 
Thousands more have been arrested and detained at a Veen prison. Hala Esfandiari told me what she remembers of that place. The tattered drug, the broken sink in the corner, and my cell happened to be, I think, over the kitchen because it had some iron windows on the wall and the smell of food would constantly come in. Plus, the lights were on 24 hours a day Mm -hmm. and the 105 days in solitary confinement, Mm -hmm. your companions are your interrogators and the women guards. And I was interrogated eight to nine hours a day. Did you get a sense that women prisoners are given certain allowances? Are they treated differently or better than male prisoners? No. I think political prisoners are being treated equally. I mean, really, because, uh, you know, I've read about women being tortured. You must remember that I think something around 20 years ago, a Canadian-Iranian journalist who was taking pictures outside the Vin was arrested and she died in Evin because they hit her so much on the head during her interrogation. Do you know, Hala, how and why the prison came to be? I mean, it is often reported in the Western press as the notorious Evin prison, which ascribes to it a certain level of darkness, right? Uh, that prisoners are routinely mistreated there. What is its history? All I know about Evin is that it's a fearsome and forbidden place. It's a place where people have been tortured, have been executed, people have disappeared, and therefore it is known as the notorious Evin prison. You know, I don't think it ever had a good reputation. So it's not a rehab center. It's a terrible place to be. I mean, when they told me we are taking you to Evin, you know, I was ready for everything because I just didn't know what was expecting me there. I mean, I was not physically tortured. I mean, I must be fair. I was not physically tortured, but mentally all the time. You know, I was threatened that they will keep me as long as it is necessary maybe years and years in Evin until I confess. I didn't have anything to confess, you see. So, I mean, it's worse than what you hear. You understand what it's like to have to spend days, weeks, months in Evin. In light of that, what goes through your mind when you see these Iranian women walking down the street, taking off their hijab, filming it, posting it on the internet, protesting this way? You know, I'm full of awe, honestly, and full of respect and admiration. And uh, on the other hand, because I was involved also in the women's movement before I left Iran, I think the torch has passed to a generation which is much stronger and bolder than we were. Does it feel like you're watching a historical shift right now? because of these protests? Definitely. You know why? Because it's the women who are leading these protests. Young women, you know, young women who have a whole life ahead of them are willing 
to sacrifice themselves. I mean, this is exceptional. And the government better deal with them and listen to them because otherwise, I mean, they will have this kind of rebellion and this kind of demonstration and protest movement, if not going on for a long time, I mean, happening in a couple of months again. Do I hear you saying you think this is an actual threat to the regime itself? I mean, it should be. It should be a threat to the regime. It is their their children. It's their children, people who grew up in Iraq. It's not, they can't blame it on the U.S. They can't blame it on Israel, although they do. They can't blame it on the previous generation anymore. No, this is people who lived in Iran and felt the hardship, felt the corruption, were angry about the economic disadvantages they were having. Plus, the women didn't want to be any more considered as second-class citizens and humiliated all the time. Constantly somebody telling you, cover your hair, why is your robe tight? Why do you have a bit of makeup? I mean, how much humiliation? I mean, you know, they really have it up to here to their head. This is the way they feel. And the government is not doing anything for them. Hala Esfandieri is a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center and the founding director of its Middle East program. She spent 105 days in solitary confinement in Tehran's Evin prison. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, the lack of trust within communities in Russian-occupied Ukraine. The war hasn't just destroyed lives and buildings. It's also broken relationships between neighbors and friends, as some are accused of collaboration. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N.'s nuclear watchdog says it will send inspectors to check out two unspecified sites in Ukraine. This comes at the request of the government in Kyiv, following Moscow's allegation that Ukraine is preparing to deploy a radioactive dirty bomb and blame Moscow for it. Russia took that assertion to the U.N. Security Council yesterday behind closed doors. Moscow's claim has been dismissed by the White House, Britain, and others. President Biden has received an updated COVID-19 booster shot. He got it yesterday amid the administration's push for Americans to get boosted by Halloween as a way to be fully protected by the Thanksgiving holiday. The bottom line here is that if you miss the things, uh, Halloween deadline, getting vaccinated in November is still a really good idea. That's Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House coronavirus coordinator. 
The Clorox company is recalling several of its pine saw cleaning products. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. Clorox says no illnesses have been reported, but the Consumer Product Safety Commission says the recalled cleaners may contain bacteria, including a strain that could cause serious infection in people with weak immune systems. The recall does not include original pine-scented pine saw, but rather several scented, multi-surface, and all-purpose cleaners produced from January 2021 through this past September. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston officials are promising action after three murders in the last week. Mayor Michelle Wu met with religious and community leaders yesterday in Dorchester. Bishop William Dickerson of the Greater Love Tabernacle Church says it will take collaboration to end the violence. We can't politicize this and we cannot ignore it away. It's, it's painful. We know some of the families are involved um, who have to deal with the painful reality of their loved one um, lost. And so um, we're not here pointing fingers. We're here trying to connect, strategize. Police have not made any arrests in the weekend killings. Some state workers who lost their jobs after refusing to get a COVID vaccine have been offered their positions back. A state official tells Mass Live roughly 50 workers have been asked to return. The Baker administration says it's making the offers to a small group of people with medical and religious exemptions. The governor's office adds it is not planning on lifting the vaccine mandate. Teachers in South Hadley say they'll begin, quote, working to the rule next month if they don't have a new contract. Amy Foley, the president of the South Hadley Education Association, explains what that means. A lot of teachers come into school early or they stay late to um, finish up work that they have to do. And work to rule, what teachers will be doing is they will be working strictly the school hours. Foley says teachers have been working for two years under an expired contract. The acting superintendent of schools says the district is looking for an agreement that is fair to teachers and fiscally responsible for the town. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins topped the Dallas Stars 3-1 to last night at the Garden. Boston has won six of the first seven games of the season. The Bees will try to win another tomorrow when they host the Detroit Red Wings. And your forecast, there are areas of dense fog across the region this morning, and the National Weather Service is warning about low visibility. That should let up by mid-morning, then showers are likely the rest of the day. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s, mostly cloudy tonight, and it falls to the 50s. Tomorrow the sun comes out for the first time this week. We'll have clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s again. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Recent advances by Ukrainian troops are revealing what Russia's invasion left behind. Some towns have changed hands as Ukraine pushes toward the city of Kherson. The liberation of those towns exposed a divided society. Neighbors now see each other as collaborators with the enemy. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports. Vladimir Siva is drawing water from a well that he'll mix with grapes picked from his backyard. He's making brandy and wine. He grabs a recent bottle of red, which he warns may be a little sweet, before pouring a glass for himself and his wife. He takes a sip before they launch into their story about the day Ukrainian intelligence agents showed up at their door outside of Kupiansk. They were looking for Russian collaborators. It was insulting. His wife Svetlana puts a hand on his arm. Obviously, I was scared. It was uncomfortable. There were four agents from the security service of Ukraine, the SBU. The family recognized their badges. They all had weapons. Volodymyr says they were direct. Are you these people? Get your things and come with us. The officers drove them to the police station, where they questioned them for two hours. They pressed Svetlana about her work as a clerk for the surrounding villages of Kupiansk. They asked her why she was working for the Russians. She told them she didn't feel like she was. Even today, I don't have the opinion that I helped Russia. I was trying to help people. As a clerk, Svetlana handles all the legal paperwork for civilian life, wills, marriage certificates. But she also is collecting names of villagers who could receive Russian payments of 10,000 rubles a little more than $160. I understand that we should have probably realized with our actions, maybe by helping people, we were also helping the occupiers. She doesn't blame the SBU. She says they were doing their job. But she doesn't understand why her neighbors, who she says she was trying to help, reported her as a collaborator. From our village, there wasn't a single person who didn't take that money. But I understand people had to survive. I don't blame anybody. But how am I guilty? Like in many liberated communities, the people of Kupiansk and surrounding villages have gone through an incredible amount of turmoil. The Russians invaded in early March, taking over the city. Some were killed, others tortured. As the months went by, resisting turned into adapting, into surviving. Now, six months later, the Russians are gone and the Ukrainians are back in control. And neighbors are trying to adjust again, when even the smallest acts of cooperation were seen as collaboration with the enemy. It's a huge problem, and it's an immediate challenge we face. That's the acting mayor of Kupiansk, Andriy Besedin, who replaced the former mayor who surrendered the city to Russian control. As artillery fires away in the background, Besedin says many here feel betrayed by their neighbors, and others are angry with themselves for how they behaved, for not resisting the Russians enough. It will take time. People need to psychologically recharge. And we, as a government, need to provide them with the conditions so that they understand that Ukraine cares for them. The challenge is especially great at the schools. Teachers who resisted the Russians are now refusing to work with colleagues who accepted contracts to teach under the Russian education system. 
There is a resistance of parents. There is a resistance of colleagues who don't want to work with them. Tatiana Shemereska is the principal of the largest elementary school in the nearby village of Shevchenkove. She says there are different levels of cooperation, but those teachers who traveled to Russia for training and began the school year under the Russian system should not be allowed to teach Ukrainian children. And she's uncomfortable that she's being asked to collect information on possible collaborators. Why the situation is so disturbing is because there is a feeling that they are trying to push responsibility onto our shoulders. Lormir and Svetlana Siba say they're ready to move on, but admit they're more reserved with their neighbors. I just take it as another life situation. Lormir is less circumspect. Now I know who I would go into battle with and who I wouldn't even amongst my friends. And while he insists he won't hold a grudge for long, he says he has a good memory. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Kupiansk, Ukraine. This week, three Maryland state police troopers filed a class action lawsuit alleging the state's law enforcement agency has a history of discriminatory practices against its employees of color. NPR's Jonathan Franklin has the story. In a 40-page lawsuit, three Maryland state police troopers say that the state's law enforcement agency has a long-standing pattern of racial discrimination against its black and brown officers. These officers are seeking compensation for loss of income and emotional distress. Two of the officers, Mayton Dunlap and Byron Tribune, are currently employed by the agency, while the third, Annalise Diaz, was fired by the agency in 2019. We do look forward to litigating this case and making sure that officers of color at the Maryland State Police are treated fairly and holding Maryland State Police responsible for their actions. That's Michal Shinar, one of the attorneys representing the three officers in the case. She says by bringing forth this case to court, the officers are hoping that the racial discrimination across the agency comes to an end. The other officers with claims pending at the EEOC, officers of color all around the state of Maryland and the Maryland State Police who are subject to these practices are dedicated to service and put their lives in the line for the state of Maryland and in exchange they just want to be treated equally and without discrimination. In one incident, the troopers alleged that there was a paper training dummy at an agency shooting range that was painted in blackface and had an Afro wig. Another incident alleges that a white officer placed a banana on a black trooper's patrol car, which the officer argues was intended to be a racist reference towards him. The lawsuit went on to point out that employees of color across Maryland State Police were transferred to, quote, less favorable and or more dangerous assignments and shifts and were often denied overtime opportunities and accompanying pay. And when the officers of color spoke up about discrimination, the lawsuit adds they oftentimes face retaliation. In a statement to NPR, Maryland State Police tell us that the agency is unable to share information pertaining to the allegations in the lawsuit, which is currently under legal review. Jonathan Franklin, NPR News. Later today on All Things Considered, an investigation looks into why some of the country's major providers offer slower internet speeds in lower income areas and communities of color, while charging the same for faster speeds in higher income neighborhoods. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, New England is slowly losing some of its native plants. 
Now a group in Framingham is on a quest to save them. And in our next hour, the story of a man with prostate cancer who was left with a huge bill for treatment that should have been inexpensive. Dense fog and showers this morning, then thunderstorms this afternoon that may bring heavy rain. Temperatures will rise to a high in the mid-60s. Toward evening, those fall into the 50s. Overnight, the fog returns, then skies clear tomorrow for a sunny day in the mid-60s. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes, and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. Climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Now in business news, Boston is now the second most expensive city in the country for renters. The rental company Zumper says the median price for a one-bedroom in the city is just over $3,000 a month. That's a 4% increase from the month before. Zumper blames Boston's housing shortage. New York remains the most expensive city, with a one-bedroom going for just over $3,800. Cambridge-based Biogen says it's raising profit forecasts following better-than-expected third-quarter earnings. The results come after a series of cost-cutting measures by the drug maker. By the, drug maker. Those include a 22 percent reduction in its research and development costs and the sale of one of its Kendall Square lab spaces. Boston-based Fidelity Investments says it will pay for its call center employees to go to college. The company will pay for select two- and four-year degrees at more than 30 colleges and universities around the U.S. The program covers the cost of tuition, books, fees, and taxes. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This summer, New England lost a plant to extinction. The smooth, slender crabgrass, once found only in New Hampshire, is one of a handful of documented extinctions in the region since European settlement. But many more plants are endangered, and a group based in Framingham is traveling across New England to search for and save native plants. Patrick Scahill has a story. Before you can save a seed, you have to find it. And today, we're hunting for a very rare plant on a rocky ledge in southern Connecticut. We're looking for Muhlenbergia capillaris, which is the uh, hair cap mully. Michael Piantadosi is director of conservation at the Native Plant Trust. As we stand near the edge of a rocky ridge, he scans the ground and tells me to watch my feet. Just be uh, cognizant where you're stepping. Yeah, I'm, I'm always... Fall off the ridge. <laughs> that too, and then also the plants, but yes. yes the plants first. <laughs> yeah, you can go all the way down. I'm concerned about stepping on plants. Next to my feet is a grassy clump that normally wouldn't rate a second glance. But this is what we're looking for, the endangered hair cap mully. 
and it's just these clumps. It's not the most significant thing, okay. but it is very rare. He says this is the only population he knows about in New England, and it's here in large part because this ledge is frozen in time. Piantidosi says across the region, there are spots that are too rugged to be developed for businesses or housing, which turns them into special places for native plants. A lot of mountain and alpine and subalpine summits have tons of rare plants, but that's because they're few and far between in the region, uh, and they're still there because it's tough to build a hotel on them. Across New England, the Native Plant Trust estimates more than one-fifth of the region's native plants are in danger from things like development, climate change, rising temperatures, and storm surges. Piantidosi says the work is like an insurance policy for plants. If a plant does take a downward trend in its population numbers, or if it blinks out and becomes locally extirpated, uh, we can assist it by allowing it to eventually maintain itself. A few weeks after we hunted for grass, I met up with Piantidosi at Nasami Nursery in Massachusetts. This is where wild collected seeds from hundreds of different plants are cleaned and stored, and some will eventually get replanted for habitat restoration. We step into a large refrigerator. Along the walls are shelves packed to the brim with tiny bags full of native seeds. It's the cold, dry air in here that allows the seeds to go dormant. Seeds stored in this way at these conditions will last uh, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, uh, even without freezing. So you have a lot of seed that right now is, you know, coming up on a decade old uh, that will still germinate with 70, 80 percent germination. Leaving the fridge, we step into a greenhouse filled with seedlings grown from plants that were surveyed and sampled in the wild. Uli Lormer, director of horticulture at the Native Plant Trust, says native plants can play a key role in habitat restoration work because local plants are attuned to local biology. In addition to being adapted to the climate, plants that evolved here also have all of the relationships intact with insects and birds. Working with other groups, the Native Plant Trust has restored a salt marsh in Connecticut, an alpine landscape in Maine, and coastlines throughout New England hit by Hurricane Sandy. Other conservation groups are also working to restore native plants, including one off the coast of Cape Cod that's restoring a pre-colonization landscape. Piantidosi says gardeners want native plants too, but he cautions the work of finding, cleaning, and growing native seeds is painstaking and slow, and many of the threats facing native plants are only increasing. A lot of different habitats are imperiled, so a lot of different groups are coming to us, coming to others that provide a native species seed, and requesting it in abundance. And it's an abundance we simply don't have. In the coming years, he says Native Plant Trust hopes to scale up their work at their nursery in the hopes they can keep up with the growing need across New England. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill. I'm Rupa Shanoi. In Boston, there's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they've got going for us today. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Hump Day. Happy Hump Day. Hey, Radio Boston, that's our show. Yeah, that's you. (laughs) I'm very excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got some great stuff for you today. So uh, many may know that uh, next week the Supreme Court is going to hear a Mm -hmm. case on affirmative action that features Harvard University. Mm -hmm. Um, Really 
brings into question whether affirmative action may be reversed by the court. Natasha Warrick, who is a, a well-known scholar at Tufts University, sociologist, writes on race and education, has just come out with a book on affirmative action that addresses the case. So, you know, this is an outcome that could literally change the face of Greater Boston <laughs> with the level of higher institutions that we have here. So we're going to talk with her about that and sort of what to expect and what the core arguments are. Yeah, it's really interesting, the role that uh, Asian Americans are playing in the argument. What else? So uh, we also have the Lazy Susans, actually. So yesterday you <laughs> ran Joanna Weiss's Cognoscenti piece, you know, the, the, the mom band. Uh, three of them came in. We learned more about what they're doing and why they think they've caught on, and they played some live music for us. So yeah, I want to be in a today. band. Do you want to be in a band with yes. me? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupert. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? And CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com enterprise. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faldin. It's been a challenge for theaters around the country to recover from the worst days of the pandemic. But some are using this time as an opportunity for reinvention. In the final segment of our series, The Next Stage, NPR's Netta Ulabi says Penumbra Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, is looking to the future, partly by burrowing into its past. This little theater, grounded in a historically black neighborhood, has grown tremendous African-American talent for almost 50 years, says its founder, Lou Bellamy. I remember August Wilson telling me stories right out here in the hall that turned out to be plays. Plays that turned out to be masterpieces, like Fences that won the Pulitzer Prize and became a movie starring Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. It's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years. Well, I've been standing with you! Now August Wilson has a big Broadway theater named after him. But this, his former home theater, is teeny, like a snug school auditorium with cinder block walls and a well-worn lobby, all inside a community center from the 1970s. When it was built, there was no reason to put a theater in it, but it was part of what the black people who were on the board and so forth thought of as the good life. Come ye. Penumbra came out of the Black Arts Movement, which emphasized self-reliance. Penumbra's annual Black Nativity is a Twin Cities Christmas staple. But the theater is also known nationally for developing new plays by Black writers. It's a lot of work to put on a play, and I have never been able to request or exact that kind of work unless it had some sort of social justice function. It had to be more than art for art's sake. Neither art nor social justice is known to pay the bills. Bellamy says it's taken a toll to stay afloat. We've mortgaged our house many times to make payroll. Always paying actors, but sometimes so little. Bellamy remembers suggesting one do a role mostly for the exposure. And he told me, that's something you die of in Minnesota, exposure. I don't need that. <laughs> when Bellamy stepped down as executive director in 2017, his daughter took over. Last year, Sarah Bellamy got the call every not-for-profit dreams of. Mackenzie Scott's foundation was giving Penumbra $5 million. 
It was shocking. I mean, I was buying groceries, you know, and I thought I'll just take this quick call. It was like a, a green light from the universe that we were on the right path. That money from Jeff Bezos's ex-wife came on top of another two and a half million dollars from the Ford Foundation. All those years of scrapping, making art against the odds had paid off. But for Sarah Bellamy, it raised a question. What if I could go back to the founding principles of this organization, to the deeper dream that the artists had about being well and healthy? Health and racial disparity is the theme of the play up at Penumbra now. It's a world premiere called Weathering, about a woman whose grief and rage about miscarrying her baby is shared by her friends and family. Saying that black babies in the U.S. die at three times the rate of white babies. When they have a white doctor. Right. But when they have a black doctor, that rate is a third lower. A third. How about that? Hmm. When you work with a theater living by its politics and that theater suddenly has millions of dollars, that means the cast and crew gets a wellness stipend on the first day of rehearsal, says Weathering's director, Colette Robert. I wasn't expecting it. There are institutions that retroactively do something like that if something comes up, but the forward thinking to be like, hey, this is a kind of heavy show, like treat yourself throughout the process is just really extraordinary. An extraordinary process that began early, she says. Penumbra paid a number of midwives and doulas, all people of color, to help develop a script about losing a child. We're here to help people cry. You can hear them working on it in rehearsal. Penumbra's president, Sarah Bellamy. Not because we wanted the show to feel more authentic. We wanted the artists who are shepherding this piece into being to know the sacred work that they were entering into, illuminating an issue that is killing people. Working on this play was partly powerful, says midwife Jennifer Almanza, because of a death here that got national attention. Our George Floyd really opened up that conversation. I get teared up every time I talk about him for some reason. Almanza, who is also a certified nurse, works at Regions Hospital in St. Paul. Floyd's murder in 2020, she says, less than two miles from this theater, coalesced the community. These connections between community theaters like Penumbra and institutions like Regions Hospital, they're new. I would say they probably wouldn't have been possible even three years ago. And that in and of itself is bringing about racial healing. Actors Company, this is your five-minute call. These days, Penumbra says it's both a theater and a center for racial healing. President Sarah Bellamy wants to boost a local diverse arts ecosystem. For example, she says Penumbra depends on the famous children's theater of Minneapolis. That is so many kids in Minnesota's first introduction to theater. If that didn't exist, would we have the audiences that we do here, generation after generation? If the Guthrie hadn't been founded in Minnesota, would all of these other theater companies have the ability to thrive? I don't know. There's so much scarcity in regional theaters, she says, and that usually leads to competition. But in Minnesota, it's more like a rainforest. And if one species is wiped out, it threatens the whole thing. So be invested in the wellness of everyone. When Penumbra first started, it did radical stuff that more theaters are beginning to experiment with today, like offering free childcare to help people see plays and programming for those children. It's investing in a risk fund to help the kind of big swings Penumbra has always done. What does it mean to value your own? That's Daniel Alexander-Jones. The performance artist has worked with Penumbra since the 1990s. Valuing your own takes work, he says, when all of the stores look the same across the country and culture is both flattened and splintered by social media. 
Local theaters could be a way for communities to rebuild root systems, he says. But that means valuing what many theaters don't. It means you're not going to have that major brand label on it. Somebody didn't give it a five-star review. Somebody didn't vet it and produce it six times before you produced it. It may be messy. It may be bloody. It may not yet have found its full footing. And for me, when I think back to the most vivid, exciting, and life-changing art that I've experienced in the last 30 years, it has invariably been the art that is wild and alive like that. Wild and alive art will survive, he says. It will outlive TikTok. We just have to find it and each other. Neda Ulibi, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Stephen Skeep. Dense fog this morning and thunderstorms are possible all day. It'll be in the low to mid-60s tonight, 50s. Then we'll finally see the sun tomorrow with clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 61 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Park School Brookline, where curious early learners grow into confident, engaged scholars. Open house for grades pre-K through 8 on November 6th. Parkschool.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Amid fears of escalation, President Biden warns Russia against using nuclear weapons and progressive Democrats retract their request for diplomatic talks with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, October 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Haiti is now in the sixth week of a fuel blockade by armed gangs that's exacerbating hunger and a cholera crisis. What they are describing is an out-of-control situation where they say they are dodging bullets from the fighting between gangs. Also this hour, two L.A. City Council members heard in a leaked conversation in which racist comments were made are refusing to resign. And Pennsylvania voters decide between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz. I think he means well, but I'd never seen him in politics, so how is he going to do? I don't know. But I see the other side, too, and boy, I just shake my head. Fog and rain today in the 60s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Two debates were held last night, less than two weeks until the midterm elections. In Pennsylvania's Senate race for a seat that could determine who controls the chamber next year, Democrat John Fetterman struggled at times to explain his positions and spoke haltingly in a debate against Republican challenger Mehmet Oz. Fetterman addressed the stroke he suffered five months ago, saying it knocked him down, but that he's, quote, going to keep coming back up. Oz focused on Fetterman's policies on immigration and crime and his support for President Biden. Meanwhile, last night in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul met her challenger, Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, for the only debate of a campaign that polls show has become more competitive than expected. And Piers Martin Costi has more. Lee Zeldin is a congressman from Long Island who voted against certifying President Biden's election, and he's been gaining ground on the Democratic incumbent by talking about what he calls New York's crime emergency. He blames Democratic policies reducing the number of people in jails and prison, policies he's promised to reverse or modify. Last night, Governor Hochul pushed back. 
First of all, you can either work on keeping people scared or you can focus on keeping them safe. Hochul emphasized her announcement last week of a plan for more cameras as well as more police on overtime on the New York City subway, following a number of high-profile attacks on trains and platforms. Martin Costi, NPR News, New York. Police in Missouri say the gunman who attacked his former high school in St. Louis this week was armed with a rifle and more than 600 rounds of ammunition. A 15-year-old student and a teacher were killed in the attack. Seven others were wounded. Police shot and killed the gunman, 19-year-old Orlando Harris. Kate Grumke with St. Louis Public Radio has more. Students who lost a teacher and a classmate won't have class for the rest of this week. Starting next week, school will be virtual for both Central Visual and Performing Arts High School and Collegiate School of Medicine and Bioscience, which share a campus. St. Louis Public School Superintendent Calvin Adams says district leaders are still trying to figure out what the rest of the timeline will look like. Obviously, with the kind of things that happen in that building, we need to make sure that that building uh, is ready to receive students and staff. He says it could be weeks or months before the school is ready for students again. For NPR News, I'm Kate Grumke in St. Louis. Israel is intensifying its campaign against new Palestinian militant group in the occupied West Bank that's been opening fire at Israeli military positions in the West Bank. Israel accuses the group of killing a soldier, and Palestinian officials say at least five people died and two dozen have been injured. Meanwhile, Israeli President Isaac Herzog is expected to visit the White House today. In the face of those who would jeopardize our security, and destabilize our world, we must stand firm hand in hand. The two will discuss challenges including normalizing relations with the Arab world. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Riders on the Orange Line are going to deal with slow zones until at least December. Most of those zones are north of downtown Boston. They were only supposed to last for about a week after the full closure of the line, but now T officials say work still has to be done before trains can travel at full speed. The Massachusetts congressional delegation is calling for more federal assistance for aid groups that provide food and shelter to new immigrants. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports the lawmakers sent a letter to the Federal Emergency Management Agency this week saying local organizations need better access to funding. FEMA provides money for emergency aid and shelter, but many groups don't know this program exists or have a history of not getting the money. A group of lawmakers organized by Senator Elizabeth Warren say the problem is most acute for local groups that help migrants and asylum seekers. Massachusetts has seen a significant uptick in the number of people arriving in recent months. The letter calls for FEMA to do more outreach and to update the program's website. A FEMA spokesperson said the program has multiple open application periods to allow organizations to apply for funding. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Plans to merge some Boston schools are being put on hold. Mayor Michelle Wu proposed the mergers as part of a school reconstruction program. She and Boston Public Schools tell the Boston Globe they need better public engagement before they can move forward. Half a dozen mergers were expected to take place this fall. BPS wanted to add sixth grade to elementary schools and phase out aging buildings.
The Roxbury Community College Foundation is receiving a record $1 million donation. The money comes from the Quincy-based Fox Rock Foundation. It will support student financial aid. Roxbury Community College Interim President Jackie Jenkins-Scott says the gift is the first in a fundraising effort celebrating the school's 50th anniversary. This is the largest donation from a single family that the college has received in its 50-year history. So this is very exciting. In May, the Fox Rock Foundation gave each of the college's graduating students $1,000. Half was to keep and half was meant to give to a group that helped support their education. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. David Posternock had a goal and an assist for the Bruins last night. They beat the Dallas Stars 3-1 to at the Garden. The Bees will host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning for all of eastern Massachusetts as well as Worcester. We'll have showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Highs in the mid-60s today, mostly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're listening to voters who will decide control of Congress. We interviewed more than 40 people with the power of the vote in two congressional districts. Yesterday, we heard people around Akron, Ohio. Today, we hear Pennsylvania, which is choosing a senator. Specifically, we drove to Western Pennsylvania, the 17th district, an open seat for Congress. We're standing by the banks of the Beaver River. It's a very calm spot with the wind just rippling the water a bit and fall colors on the hill on the far side. But you can also hear the rumble of a railroad train coming past because this is an industrial river lined by old industrial towns. And it's in those towns where we've been talking with people about the past, present, and future of this country. The towns around the Beaver River include Beaver, Big Beaver, and Beaver Falls, all in Beaver County. In Beaver Falls, we stood on the porch of John Mobley. When you were a kid, would you always go look at the trains going by? We would be up on the train. See that train coming by right now? We would be up there if it was slower than this. If it was a little bit slower than that, we used to jump the track. I shouldn't probably be saying this. That's a federal (laughs) offense, but... uh, we used to take train rides and stuff. It was like oh, I you said, would jump on the train? Oh, yeah, if it was going slow enough, you'd take it up to the other end. We had football practice. After high school, he worked for a company that supplies the Pittsburgh steel industry. Now that steel employs fewer people, he drives 30 miles to work as a security guard at a university. Well, what concerns do you have, if any, about this community and the way things are going? Well, just, you know, opportunity for the young people. There's not much opportunity for the young people around here. His son Cameron is raising a family in the Victorian house next door. He works as a union millwright. We're industrial mechanics. We install machinery in like a steel mill or whatever mill. Really precise, down to the thousands. That highly skilled work has taken him all across the region, including the steel mill in Braddock, Pennsylvania, 
where he saw the one-time mayor there, John Fetterman, now a candidate for U.S. Senate. The last time I went there, I seen him ride down the street in a Jeep with his foot out the door, you know. So, I mean, small-town guy, you know, I got to get behind anyone like that. Cameron Mobley is ready to vote for Fetterman, although his father is less certain. I'm in a lot of turmoil within myself on who to vote for. The Republican Senate candidate is Mehmet Oz. Dr. Oz is seen on TV, who Democrats mock as a longtime resident of New Jersey. I have a problem with Oz because he, you're not from Pennsylvania. It's like you're coming to Pennsylvania telling us like we don't know nothing, you know what I mean? How are you going to make a change? You never lived here before. John Mobley is a Democrat and thinks the party will fight income inequality, but here is why he is conflicted. Well, I know the abortion thing is at the height of everything right now, and I'm against abortion. There are some gray areas that I'm willing to lean to, okay? Like rape, incest, yes, life of the mother? Yes, no doubt, no question. A Supreme Court ruling that ended a right to abortion galvanized supporters of abortion rights, but also motivated opponents. Is abortion a big enough issue that it would get you to vote for a Republican that you maybe disagree with on some other issues? That's a, that's, that, remember I said I'm in the middle? Yeah. I'm stuck, that's where I'm stuck at right there. Beaver Falls lost a lot of population when the steel industry cut its workforce. Vacant houses lined some of the streets downtown. It still features many kinds of people who once worked in the mills. And the town recently elected its first black mayor, Kenya Johns, who took us for donuts at a shop near City Hall. Oh, it smells amazing in here. She says the best thing at Orem's is the cinnamon rolls, and the clerk found us the last few of the day. The mayor is a Beaver Falls native who returned here after college. Everyone leaves. Like, you graduate, everyone goes. You want to get the furthest away you can from where you are, especially if you grow up in a small town. But the problem with that is if everyone leaves, who makes it better? Who changes it? She ran for mayor before age 30. And though she won, she speaks like someone who knows people here feel the government has failed them in the past. If you really want change, I don't make the change in these seats, right? There's small, tangible things that I can do. But the real change happens with the citizens and the community. I think we really, we spearheaded that these first 10 months in office to really just let them know we're here, we're consistent, we're transparent. We know that we've messed up. And even if they're not our sins, we have to atone for them um, because we are the leaders, right? The Democratic mayor says her views align with her party's candidates for Congress. But she has declined to formally endorse anyone and vows to work with whoever wins. She wants to represent the struggling neighborhoods near the river and prosperous neighborhoods farther up, where we knocked on doors. Hi. 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 Can I help you? Yes, we're reporters. I'm with NPR, National Public Radio. Oh, okay. Lauren Kozak was watching the kids, but said her husband was politically active, so she got him on the phone. Holy, yeah, yeah, I know your voice very well. I've listened to you plenty of times. Roman Kozak was just down the street, and he came over while Lauren talked about the community. It really is reviving in many ways. A college that's here really keeps it afloat and draws a lot of people here. She's one of them. She came here to study, met her future husband at a coffee shop, and they now live in a house next to the coffee shop. Roman says he's an outreach chairman of the local Republican Party. I ran for city council myself about nine years ago. Um, lost by 17 votes, but ended up being friends with everybody that ran against me, and um, we've worked together in multiple ways. He calls the Democratic mayor a wonderful person and has served on the board of a community development corporation working to revitalize downtown. When you actually live next to the people and get to know them, it breaks down those political barriers that the national media tries to you know, put us up against one another. Though people will vote differently in this fall's elections for Congress, the Kozaks are focused on inflation. 
our grocery bills have almost, we feel like, doubled. Now we do have four boys, so that probably accounts for part of it. They've met and liked Jeremy Schaefer, the Republican seeking the open seat in Congress. They voted twice for Donald Trump. Do you think you'd vote for him a third time? Primary general, or what do you... Do he sounded open to other Republicans. But if, if President Trump is the general election nominee, yeah, yeah, I'd vote for him. Despite his experience with local Democrats, he considers national Democrats too far left. At the coffee shop next door, we found Jolene Atkins holding a business meeting with Christine Kroger, who runs a local children's museum. When we asked about national politics, they said this. Oh, it's yeah. interesting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Atkins has seen the Democratic congressional candidate Chris Deluzio speak at a gun control event. She liked him. But regardless, I would be voting Democrat anyway. Would you tend to vote in that case more on the individual or, as some people have said to us, like they're, they're thinking about the party? I am thinking more about the party. I am too. I would love to be able to say I'm voting for the person, mm -hmm. but there's just too much at stake. I can't do that. She's thinking about climate change and abortion rights. I shouldn't even say abortion rights. I should say the right for a woman <laughs> to be in charge of her own body because I do have a 21-year-old daughter. Jolene says it's so emotional to talk about politics, she felt herself growing physically warm. This is looking great. Thank this you so much. Been, like, now I'm like, you know, we have to have our meeting, and now I'm, like, thinking of all these things. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 it was great. Meeting. No, no, no. I'm like, wow, to talk about, to actually, like, talk about it with someone other than my son, I'm like, wow, I'm, I really am heated. And some people around the Beaver Valley, understandably, declined. You got like five minutes to talk? No, I don't. Okay. But we were told we'd hear interesting things at the supermarket in Beaver, which is the prosperous county seat. Mark Andrusik runs the grocery from his office, tucked in the back. It's barely big enough for his desk. I'm 62 years old. I started in this business when I was seven years old and never had another job. Seven years old? 54 years in grocery. Your parents were, were in it? Grandparents, great-grandparents. Father, what brother, job sister. did you do when you were seven Everything. years old? Everything. Today, pictures of his kids are taped on his office wall, and he's doing paperwork in the old style, writing by hand and wielding a stamp. Beaver is well off, with the shops filled on the main street and rows of historic homes on a bluff overlooking the Ohio River. But Andrusik says his numbers are not adding up. My labor is up 30, 40 percent versus four years ago. The cost of everything, utilities, electric, gas, every vendor is tacking on fuel charges onto the bills. Andrusik leans right, and the Republican Senate candidate Mehmet Oz came by his store. What'd you think? Him and his wife are very polite. Um, I think he means well, but I think he's a politician. I've never seen him in politics, so how is he going to do? I don't know. But I see the other side, too, and boy, I just shake my head, so I'm not sure. He waves off John Fetterman, the Democrat for Senate, and says the stock market's decline this year has set back his retirement. Are you likely to vote for Oz, even though you sound kind of skeptical about it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sometimes you have to pick whatever you think's going to not do worse. <laughs> Around the corner from the grocery store, Gary Eck came to the door with his dog. He has Democratic campaign signs on his lawn. What concerns do you have about this community? Uh, more so the country than the community, but um, Go on. just just the usual Democratic plight, you know. I'm for legalized marijuana also. I, I use medical marijuana. And uh, I think the Republicans just want to take more and more things away. 
they claim they're for our freedoms, but um, I, I don't understand how a woman could possibly vote for them. He knows something of the Democratic congressional candidates and plans to vote for them. He also supports Joe Biden for now. How do you think Biden is doing? I think he's doing okay. I don't think he should run. Numerous voters across two states noted that both Trump and Biden are well beyond 70. Many say they're ready for someone new, but first come the midterms that shape the next two years. How'd you end up with signs on your lawn? Did somebody come by and... Uh, no, we ordered them. Uh-huh. I'll probably get handwritten signs that I put out to insulting Republicans. <laughs> There's a polling station right here, so I... Uh, oh, this at, at the uh, fire the, hall, firehouse, yes. okay. Yeah. So they'll be coming by for early voting or whatever. Uh, yeah, so the last election... Um, I put silly things up like Trump likes the Baltimore Ravens and uh, not a good uh, thing to say in Pennsylvania. I asked the kids, what's the worst Halloween candy you can have? And they told me Almond Joy they, they hated the most. So I said, Trump eats Almond Joys. And so some people come up and like the signs and some people just glare at me. The local police chief told us officers have occasionally responded to calls about political disputes. People on one side put up a sign and people on the other side take it the wrong way. There's tension beneath the surface in the Beaver River Valley, though people try to keep it civil as the country heads toward a decision. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, NPR investigates the huge bill received by a man with prostate cancer for treatment that was supposed to be inexpensive. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love. Celebrate the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. Closes November 6th, PEM.org. MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Worcester Academy, a co-ed day and boarding school, grades 6 to 12 and postgraduate. Open house November 6th. Your future starts here, worcesteracademy.org. I'm Deepar Fernandez. One of the simplest and most flexible ways to help low-income families most in need, give them cash. Some of it I actually use it toward grocery, and sometimes we use it for fun. We take a look at the rise in guaranteed income experiments in cities across the country. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's... It's still foggy out this morning, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. The rain might get heavy at times. The high will be near 66. Tonight it falls to a low around 57. Tomorrow we finally get a respite from the soggy weather. It'll be sunny with a high near 67. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. And later today on Radio Boston, affirmative action in higher education. The Supreme Court will take up a case next week that challenges the effort to improve racial equity on campuses. The outcome could have huge nationwide implications. Tiziana Deering will unpack the issue with experts. That's today at 11 and 3 on Radio Boston. It's 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Fisher Investments. 
Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live online or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Why do drugs cost so much more in the United States than they do in the rest of the world? That is the subject of our Medical Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal joins us once again. She's editor-in-chief of our partner, Kaiser Health News. Welcome back. Good to be here. Okay, so who are we hearing from today? Today we meet Paul Hines and Josie Tenor, a couple who live in suburban Chicago. Paul's a consultant who has cancer, and he and Josie were outraged that his cancer drug costs so much, and even more outraged when they discovered why. Ah, well, let's find out the why from Dan Weissman. He's a reporter, host of the Arm and a Leg podcast, who visited Paul and Josie. Josie Tenor is a doctor. A friend set her up with Paul Hines in 2017. And at first, she wasn't that interested. He yes. pulled a, an interesting line on me. Go ahead, use the line. No, you use the line. <laughs> so he basically said, well, you know, why don't you go and find somebody else? But in the meantime, why should you be alone? We can, I could entertain you. And then, of course, he proceeded to occupy every waking moment of my life. No room for anyone else. But she did pose him a tough question right up front. Hey, pal, when's the last time you had a physical? It had been years. Three, four, five. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't date people who don't take care of themselves. So go to the doctor and get a physical. And here's where the rom-com story takes a turn. The blood work from that physical came back with a marker for prostate cancer. And a biopsy showed Paul had an advanced case. Josie and Paul have been together ever since. And she has guided Paul's quest for the most effective, least invasive treatment. Prostate tumors feed on testosterone, which big doses of cannabis can suppress. It wasn't Paul's drug of choice. I mean, like, you know, college 30 years ago, but yeah, it wasn't mm -hmm. my thing. But for this purpose, it worked. Just one problem. A lot of weed all day, every day, was not compatible with Paul's high-powered consulting jobs. Onward to cutting-edge treatment in Canada and then surgery to remove Paul's prostate. But the cancer kept coming back. Next stop, a drug called Lupron that suppresses testosterone almost entirely, which is no fun at all. Also, testosterone is so important to cognitive function and motivation and energy. You're feeling really good when it's a thousand. When it gets down to seven or less. It's no picnic. And then there was the bill for the shot. On his way to his second one, he told me the price. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, it couldn't be 38,000. That's ridiculous. But that was the bill from the University of Chicago hospital system. Most of it was for the medicine itself. And as Josie knew from her medical practice, Lupron is not a new designer drug. I used to give it to endometriosis patients for 30 bucks. After his second dose, Paul asked if there was a cheaper option. A pharmacist said, yeah, a pill, much cheaper, about $200 a month for Paul. But he was still on the hook for those first two shots. After insurance, the hospital said he owed just over $8,000. He's paying now in installments. A successful consulting career gave Paul the resources to pursue every treatment he and Josie thought was worth trying, but he doesn't have money to burn. After several years of this, the resources are not what they used to be. Money's not his only concern. Lupron isn't a cure, and after a few years, it tends to stop working. The cancer 
outsmarts the drug. Cancer outsmarts the drug, at which point then you start running out of options. When he's got the energy between cycles of treatment, Paul says he's working on his bucket list. He and Josie took a biking trip this fall before starting the next round. For NPR News, Dan Weissman. Okay, so let's try to figure out what's happening here with Elizabeth Rosenthal. Can you give us the backstory here? How would a drug that in recent memory was 30 bucks is now $38,000? Well, uh, it's a long story. Lupron was invented about 50 years ago, but drug makers got brand new patents on it, um, giving it new years of monopoly pricing every time they released a new form of it. I thought that after a while, a patent on a drug is supposed to expire. There are literally dozens of ways that drug makers, like the manufacturers of Lupron, now routinely find ways to extend those patents. They make a slow release form, as they did here. They can develop a pediatric product, produce them in a chewable form, file some lawsuits. And presto, the FDA awards them a new patent, even though the chemical in the drug is exactly the same. And then, of course, hospitals can mark up the prices as much as they want, just like, uh, you know, booze in a restaurant. So the drug companies are playing a game in a sense. Is there anything that patients can do on their end to play the game and keep themselves from being overcharged? Yeah, as long as they understand the game. The first thing is that if a patient needs an infusion or an injection, it's better to get it at an outpatient clinic or a doctor's office than a hospital. Hospitals add the highest facility fees. So just where you go to get it makes a huge difference. What else? Well, the other thing which we saw with this case is it's important to know that because doctors and hospitals charge these big fees for administering drugs, you should always ask, can I get this in a pill form or in a, uh, a different kind of injection that I can give myself at home? And the answer is often yes, but you know what? The financial incentives are aligned against your doctor telling you that. And as we saw with Paul and Josie's case, they had to ask about that. And then the pharmacist said, oh, sure. And it saved them not just a lot of money, but also, as Josie said, a big pain in the rear. <laughs> okay. Another motivation to push for answers. Dr. Rosenthal, thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is with Kaiser Health News. And if you have a medical bill that just doesn't seem right to you, or is just really large, go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us about it. Hey, thanks for listening to us on your public radio station, which brings you Morning Edition. You can tune in this afternoon for all things considered. Keep up on the world. And of course, you can always find us on social media. Layla's at Layla Favel. And Rachel Martin is at Rachel NPR. A. Martinez is at A. Martinez LA. And I am NPR Inskeep. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, the race between Democratic New York Governor Kathy Hochul and Republican challenger Lee Zeldin is getting close. Zeldin claims criminal justice reforms have caused a crime emergency in the state. 
It's 8.29. The Boston Book Festival is this Friday and Saturday. WBUR's Megna Chukabarty, Tiziana Deering, and Daryl C. Murphy will be there. Get info at WBUR.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Mortgage rates in the U.S. are at their highest level in 21 years. The average rate on a 30-year fixed loan now tops 7%. That's according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Interest rates have been climbing this year as the Federal Reserve continues raising rates to try to curb inflation in the U.S. economy. Guns and abortion rights were two of the main issues in last night's Michigan gubernatorial debate. Rick Pluta with Michigan Public Radio says incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer is being challenged by Republican Tudor Dixon. The debate took place not far from Oxford High School, the scene of a mass shooting almost 11 months ago that left four students dead. Whitmer, a Democrat, has called for background checks and a safe storage law. As a mom, I am furious that in this country and only this country, Guns are the number one killer of our children. Dixon, the GOP nominee, said more restrictions would leave only criminals with guns and would make schools, quote, sitting duck zones. The two also differed on abortion rights. Whitmer is in court in an effort to block enforcement of an abortion ban. Dixon calls the governor's position radical. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta. Abortion rights and crime were two major topics in last night's gubernatorial debate in New York between Governor Kathy Hochul and Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. More Massachusetts students are missing a critical amount of school than before the pandemic. State education leaders say that this year, nearly 30 percent of students missed more than 18 days of school. They add that most of the absences were from COVID infections, and they're linking this data to decreased performance. Earlier this week, a report found that math and reading test scores have dropped in the state and that it may take years for kids to recover the learning they lost during the pandemic. Local leaders will hold a vigil today in Somerville to honor people who've died from domestic violence. Advocacy group Jane Doe says 16 people in Massachusetts have already died this year in incidents of domestic violence. That's two more than those who died in all of last year. Victoria Helberg of the domestic violence prevention agency Respond says the lingering effects of the pandemic may be driving the loss of life. The financial impacts of COVID are going to be felt for a really long time. The housing uh, instability that affects a lot of our clients, all of those things are, are going to remain. Tonight's vigil starts at 6 at Sadashu Park in Davis Square. The city of Salem will remove a portrait of President Andrew Jackson from the city hall cha- city council chambers. Last night's council vote was unanimous. Supporters of the move cited Jackson's ownership of enslaved people and his forced removal of Native Americans from areas of the South. The Salem News reports the portrait will be moved to a nearby room temporarily until a decision is made on what to do with it long term. It's 8:33. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins have now won six of the first seven games of their season. They beat the Dallas Stars 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees are off today. They'll host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. And the Celtics' Jalen Brown is severing ties with the sports agency run by Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Brown says he's leaving Donda Sports because of Ye's recent anti-Semitic comments. Earlier this year, Brown became the first NBA star to sign a deal with the agency. In your forecast, there are areas of dense fog across the region this morning, and the National Weather Service is warning about low visibility. That should let up by mid-morning, then showers are likely the rest of the day. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. Mostly cloudy tonight, and it falls to the 50s. Tomorrow, the sun comes out for the first time this week. We'll have clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s again. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at YourPartTimeController.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Republicans are running strong in many places as we near election time, and that includes the blue state of New York, where the Democratic governor faces an unexpectedly close race for re-election. The challenger is attacking Democrats over crime. NPR law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi reports. The latest viral video to put New Yorkers on edge is from last Friday. It shows a commuter getting tackled out of the blue and shoved onto the tracks of the L train. That was just two stops from here. Peter Carey is outside a nearby subway station in Bushwick. He recalls another violent crime here two years ago, a woman who was severely beaten by a stranger. I just said, you know what, enough is enough. I just jumped on this bike of mine and I rode down here and I decided that, you know what, I'm, you know, I'll be a presence here at this you know, station. He started a group of volunteers called Safe Walks to escort people home. He assumed it would be a temporary thing, just for the dark days of the pandemic. Instead, he says the demand for the service has grown. When we ask folks, um, they're still terrified, they're still scared, there's still lots of incidents happening, which is sad. It's an unfortunate thing because ideally, you know, this should be something that should have only lasted like maybe two, three months. Fear of crime has persisted in New York, even as the pandemic fades. And in this state, there's another potential factor. Right before COVID, New York reformed its bail system, which means a lot fewer people go to jail now before trial. At the time, Democrats celebrated the reform. Three years on, Republicans are blaming it. Here's Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin accepting the endorsement of the Corrections Officers Union outside Rikers Island Jail earlier this week. We want boldness. We want courage, and that means that on day one, we will declare a crime emergency in the state of New York. Zeldin is promising to suspend bail reform and other recent reforms meant to reduce the number of people in jail. Republicans say when some of those people are released, they reoffend. 
But Democrats say the percentages are very low, and it's unjust to keep people locked up before trial just because they can't afford bail. Tiffany Caban is a New York City council member and former public defender who advocates for less incarceration. For a long time, black and brown communities have been harmed by the policies and laws connected to our criminal legal system. And this is us trying to right some wrongs. And we've done it in a way that has not had an effect on public safety. And that's what all the data and the research shows. But everyone doesn't agree about what the numbers show. To get an opposite view of reality, just go to the Queens neighborhood of Rafael Mangual. He researches policing and public safety for the conservative Manhattan Institute. He's convinced that recent laws to reduce incarceration have undermined public order in New York. I think that the criminal offending population has taken note, and I think that New Yorkers are noticing that just by virtue of that general deterioration in order. People taking over streets now to hold little car events where they're doing donuts in a circle, literally stopping traffic in America's most major city, as if they are the police. The complicated truth is that there have been so many social variables in the last few years, closed schools, disrupted work, political upheaval, that no one can really prove that one thing made crime go up. What is clear, though, is the public's concern. Acknowledged last night during the gubernatorial debate by Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul. Now, I understand the fear. I, I, I walk the streets of New York City every day. I've taken the subways. This fear is real. There's facts that talk about statistics which make a different case, but I'm also dealing with real human beings. And that fear has allowed Zeldin to make this a competitive race, which opens up the possibility that the next governor of New York could be a pro-Trump Republican. Martin Costi, NPR News, New York. Haiti is now in the sixth week of a fuel blockade by armed gangs in the capital of Port-au-Prince. That's making a hunger crisis in the country more dire by the day. Yeah, the Haitian health ministry says the number of suspected cases of cholera has nearly doubled in the past few days and is now close to 2,000. NPR's Ader Peralta is in Port-au-Prince and he joins us now. Good morning, Ader. Good morning, Leila. So I understand you spoke to officials from the World Food Program there in Haiti. What are they saying? I uh, spoke to Jean-Martin Bauer, the country director for WFP, and he paints a, a dire picture. He says that in some areas that are currently under gang control, some mothers are heating up water with salt for dinner. That's mm. all they have. Mm. Um, a study that the WFP did found that 19,000 people are facing catastrophic levels of hunger, and that's a technical designation. The worst level of hunger before a famine is declared, and that is the first time it has happened in Haiti or in the Americas. Um, I pushed Bauer, telling him that if this is such an extraordinary situation, then why have we seen so little presence uh, of the WFP in Port-au-Prince? And he said that they're doing the, their best. Let's listen. Yes, we need to do more, but it will be very hard for us to do more when armed groups hold the fuel port, when the roads to the borders are controlled by armed groups, when my staff can't come to the office because they're being threatened of being attacked or raped or burned. There's only so much that can be done in this kind of environment. So we're doing our best, and we're hoping that we'll have the opportunity to support the Haitian population in security and dignity. Hmm. So it's not safe for a lot of people to try to help. I know the U.S. and Canada sent two big plane loads of security equipment to the Haitian police earlier this month. Has that changed anything? The armored vehicles um, that were sent haven't made it out to the street. 
So not much has changed. Uh, when we're in downtown Port-au-Prince, we can hear the gunfire coming from the neighborhoods that are under gang control. Um, the people we've spoken to who live there say they live through daily gun battles, um, that they have to risk their lives to go to work or to go to the supermarket. Um, and yesterday, the violence hit the journalism fraternity. Um, one of the most well-known journalists in Haiti, Robertson Alphonse, survived an assassination attempt. Alphonse is known as a sharp critic of the government because he drew a connection between public officials and criminal gangs. Um, he was driving to his radio show when gunmen opened fire. They fired at least 10 bullets. Uh, Alphonse was hit several times. Uh, he was helped by people on the streets. Uh, he was taken to the hospital. And luckily, uh, friends tell us that he's in stable condition. Wow. And what is the government saying about all this? Not much. Uh, we've been asking for an interview over and over with the acting prime minister or anyone at his office, and we have heard nothing. But more importantly... Uh, the people of Haiti have heard nothing. We're now uh, going on almost six weeks of this fuel blockade, and the prime minister has not spoken to the nation. So the government at the moment seems almost completely absent. Uh, prime Minister Ariel Henry did call for an international intervention, but that also seems stalled. Um, at this point, it seems unlikely that the UN uh, will even vote on the matter this week. NPR's Ader Peralta reporting from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Thank you so much, Ader. Thank you, Leila. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, one L.A. city councilor heard in a leaked recording of racist comments has resigned, but two others have refused to do so, and outrage is growing over the government salaries they continue to draw. In your forecast, dense fog and showers this morning, then thunderstorms this afternoon that may bring heavy rain. Temperatures will rise to a high in the mid-60s. Toward evening, those fall into the 50s. Overnight, the fog returns. Then skies clear tomorrow for a sunny day in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny on Friday, too, but only in the low 50s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton Country Day a Sacred Heart school preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. Now in business news, Boston-based General Electric says it will restructure the energy arm of its business. The company says it will do major restructuring to GE Vernova in an effort to save $500 million a year. The changes are a result of a 17% drop in revenue so far this year. Beverly Hospital will close its North Shore Birth Center in December. Salem News reports the hospital will provide a grant to support the opening of a new center. The current building will be leased to a midwifery practice. The hospital announced plans to close the center last spring, citing staffing shortages. Boston-based Prevail says it plans to double its workforce and move into a new office space in the city. The Boston Business Journal reports the software company currently has about 40 people on staff. The news follows Prevail's announcement that it raised $20 million in its latest round of fundraising. It's 8:45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. 
Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Two Los Angeles City Council members are refusing to leave their jobs. They're among three lawmakers who were secretly recorded talking in racist terms about redistricting and political support. One of the Democrats has resigned under pressure from President Biden, among others. The other two have not. And though they have also not been turning up for city council meetings, they're collecting their paychecks. NPR's Vanessa Romo has been looking into that. Hey there, Vanessa. Hi, Steve. So if they haven't quit, I get politicians who refuse to resign. People do that. Why haven't they been showing up at City Hall? Well, both have said that they think that it would be very distracting in terms of the process and the things on the agenda of the city council that need to move forward. They also are probably being kept out because of the giant crowds of people who are there Hmm. who have consistently berated them even when they're not there. So it would be problematic, to say the least, for them to show up, but they're being paid. How much? Well, they make a pretty good salary, according to the California State Controller's Office, who gets their information from the city's W-2s. Pay for all city council members is roughly $218,000 a year. They also get lots of other perks. They earn about $66,000 a year in pensions. And on top of that, they also get a city car to drive around, and they have budgets for meals and travel expenses. So when you add that all up, it's a pretty staggering figure. Is that a lot more than other city council members in other cities? It's more than what city council members in San Francisco and New York make by about $70,000. And actually, the city council members make more than the governor of California. Wow. Right. But, you know, the greatest discrepancy is actually between what the city council members make and the people that they serve, especially when you take an even closer look at the incomes of the people who live in Kevin de Leon and Gil Cedillo's districts. L.A. is a huge sprawl, obviously, so of course there's going to be a lot of range there. But in Boyle Heights, for example, which is a largely Latino working class neighborhood in De Leon's district, the median income there, according to the latest census figures available, is about $44,000 a year, and about 26% of people are living in poverty. And then in Chinatown, which is in Gil Cedillo's district, the median income household is less than $50,000. But they're still collecting this pay, so what if anything would force them out? It really doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Kevin DeLeon, who has had people protesting outside of his office and even people camped out in front of his home, he went on television and flat out said he's not resigning. He said that that would be the easy way out, that in order to do the real work of healing, he needs to stay. And he's got another two years left in his term. So that's about $568,000 in salary and pension. Meanwhile, Gil Cedillo was actually already on his way out. His term ends mid-December. Officially, he said through a spokesperson that he remains, quote, at a place of reflection. And if he waits it out at $18,000 a month, that adds up to a minimum of $36,000 in salary. Place of reflection, okay, but is there any way to force them out? 
No, they cannot be forced out. The only thing that could happen is a recall election. But other than that, there's no way to push them out. NPR's Vanessa Romo, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new survey finds that last year, 4.5% of U.S. households didn't have a checking or savings account with a bank. We look at how that compares historically. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Celeste Headley is on the line to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Celeste. Hello, Rupa. We are talking about so much. We are going to be talking about emperor penguins, and they're in danger, not surprisingly. We're going to give you an update on where Congress stands on Ukraine funding. We'll talk about Medicare price caps. We'll also talk with Kevin Nealon, the stand-up comic and former Saturday Night Live alum. He has a new art book out, and he's actually, for a celebrity artist, or for any artist, Really good. And we'll talk about the Kanye West flap over his anti-Semitic remarks and his long-standing anti-Black rhetoric as well. Mm. Yeah, that is a lot. Thank you, Celeste. Thanks. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? When migrants started getting bused to Washington, D.C. this summer, a pair of local chefs stepped in to feed them. Coming to this country as an immigrant is already uh, a hard enough journey as it is of leaving everything you know behind in the hopes of finding something better. It definitely hit home. I'm Elsa Chang. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. Rain and temperatures in the low to mid-60s today. 50s tonight and fog overnight, then sunny and upper 60s tomorrow. Friday will be cooler in the low 50s under mostly sunny skies. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 851. Tech companies cannot outrun the business cycle. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, HR and workforce management solutions designed to turn a business from a workplace into a work of art. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio reporting this week from Houston, where we're putting a Texas focus on some of our coverage with Election Day less than two weeks away. But first, we have quarterly results from Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. Those are due later today. But the news after the market closed yesterday from Google's parent company, Alphabet, and from Microsoft shows some big tech companies seen as almost invincible during the pandemic are now stumbling amid worries of a looming recession. Marketplace's Nova Safo has that. Alphabet and Microsoft offered downbeat reports for the quarter ending in September. Profits at Alphabet declined 27%. The Google parent commands the biggest share of the digital advertising market, but it saw ad sales growth slow. And at its video streaming site, YouTube, ad sales actually declined 2%. Microsoft reported a 14% profit decline, reflecting a weak market for personal computers. The company did better in its cloud computing business, but not enough to offset the PC slump. 
Spotify reported that it too faced slowing ad sales growth. It expects this to be a temporary setback. The audio streaming company said monthly active users increased 5% to more than 450 million. Nearly half were paying subscribers. Overall, this quarterly earnings season has seen companies generally downcast about the near-term outlook, expecting slowdowns in the months ahead. But some multinationals, such as Coca-Cola and General Motors, have reported strong sales. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Let's check the numbers. NASDAQ futures are down 2% after the Alphabet Google news there. That stock is down 6% in pre-market trading. S&P futures are down 1%. 30-year mortgage rates are now above 4.1%, the highest since 2001. I mentioned we're coming to you from Texas this week, a state that gained two congressional seats after a surge in population confirmed by the 2020 census. And as is the case across the country, the state redrew the lines of its congressional districts. Well, now a teachable moment about how the redistricting process is changing the way money is spent ahead of the election day. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer has that. It's six o'clock on a Wednesday night in October, and retired accountant Mudeem Farias is sitting in the La Sierra Events Center in Harlingen, Texas, in the southeastern corner of the state, waiting for Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez to appear. She's excited to see him in person. She's already seeing him constantly on TV. Well, I watch TV most of the day, but I'd have said about four or five times. Finally, Gonzalez hops up on the stage. After his stump speech, Gonzalez plunges into the crowd. I wanted a picture of you. Gonzalez has represented Texas's 15th congressional district since 2017, but the Republican-dominated legislature redrew that district to include more Republicans. The new redistricting map put Gonzalez's home in the adjacent 34th district, which has more Democrats, and he decided to run there. Well, we're running a full campaign like we did the very first time. Uh, we feel very positive. We've knocked on over 145,000 doors. The door knocking, events like this, and all those campaign ads are expensive. Gonzalez is shelling out a lot of money to introduce himself to voters in his new district. He spent more than $3 million already this cycle versus just 471000 in the prior cycle. Sheila Krumholtz heads Open Secrets, a nonprofit that tracks money in politics. Krumholtz says Gonzalez's opponent, Republican Congresswoman Myra Flores, has raised more than $3 million. The Flores campaign declined my interview request. Krumholtz says the big spending is over for the candidates vying for the state's two new congressional seats, like Democrat Greg Kassar, running for the new seat in heavily Democratic Austin. He's already spent $1.4 of $1.5 million. Now that he's won the primary, Kassar is expected to coast to victory in the general election. Same thing for Republican Wesley Hunt, running for the other new congressional seat in Houston. Now Kassar and Hunt are donating to other candidates' campaigns because... In Congress, if you've got money, you've got power. Brandon Roddinghouse teaches political science at the University of Houston. Spending it on people helps to build relationships. And that's what members of Congress really need, especially if you want to move up the legislative ladder. Hunt is also donating to a super PAC aligned with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Party leaders typically reward that kind of generosity with spots on high-profile congressional committees. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. 
and by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Now to a new survey from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That agency finds that last year, 4.5% of U.S. households were unbanked. That is, they didn't have a checking or savings account with a bank. Now, that amounts to nearly 6 million households, but the news is that that's the lowest proportion since the survey began back in 2009. Marketplace's Lily Jamali explains why. Part of the reason more households are opening bank accounts is because of pandemic-related government stimulus, says Jonathan Mintz, CEO of the Cities for Financial Empowerment Fund. The government did a really great job of saying to people who didn't have a bank account, listen, we can get you your money much faster and much more safely if you open up a safe account. And Mintz says people responded. According to the FDIC, a third of households that opened an account within 15 months of the survey said getting a government benefit payment contributed to their decision. But whether people will hold on to their new accounts is an open question, says Lisa Servan at the University of Pennsylvania. The two primary reasons that people said they didn't have a bank account were, first, that they didn't have the minimum balance, and second, that they don't trust banks. Lower-income households can't always afford to maintain the minimum balance required to avoid fees, Servan said, and those fees aren't going away. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. With Game 1 of the World Series here in Houston on Friday, the Houston Chronicle's reporting the tickets in the aftermarket are going for $550 standing or $700 for an actual seat. They'll all be in Philly for Game 3, where online ticket resellers are asking $950 for a seat aftermarket resellers, you might say scalpers. From Texas this week, courtesy of Houston Public Media, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We have some dense fog this morning and thunderstorms are possible all day. It'll be in the low to mid 60s, tonight 50s, then we'll finally see the sun tomorrow with clear skies and temperatures in the mid 60s. Mostly sunny on Friday in the 50s and it's supposed to stay dry and sunny through the weekend. It's 61 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.